John 10 is what we're looking at this morning, John 10 and uh, verse 22. I'm going to read it for us. Uh, I tend to do that, not always, but I like to read it because I like to be able to sort of emphasize where I think uh, God is leading us as we go through this passage. John 10 verse 22. And in the passage, the story we're going to read out, it is winter, um, which doesn't mean it's winter again in Chicago, but it was winter in Jerusalem. And Jesus is in the temple. So John 10, verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Many believed in him there. Here's a question for you. How do you persuade How do you persuade people to believe that Jesus is the Son of God? What techniques do you employ? What strategies do you have? What stories do you tell? What musical atmosphere do you create? What arguments do you use? What apologetic approaches do you employ? How do you persuade people to believe today that Jesus is the Son of God. Statistics are out these days that show us that the percentage of those saying, at least, and of course those who say they are Christians may be different from those who really are Christians, 
But the percentage of those who say they are Christians in the American uh, in the American population has, in the last few years, gone down from about 78.4 percent to about 70.6 percent. That's a decline of about eight percent in the last five years or so. In fact, one survey of such statistics, and of course there are several different organizations that do them, one survey of such statistics predicts that if the current trends continue, the percentage of Christians in America will drop to 59% by 2050. And here... Many believed in him. In fact, I think if we can grasp the teaching of this passage, we will have a key, an insight into how it is that we should persuade people to believe that Jesus is the Son of God today. And if we can do that, well, what, what results there could be? The same survey uh, makes a... Um, further prediction. Because of the numbers in the rising generation, so millennials, there's a lot of people who are millennials, and the generation underneath that called Gen Z by marketers, because of the sheer demographics of those two huge swathes of population that's coming up, because of that, if if the church in America would return to retention and evangelism like it had just 20 years ago, it would see more people saved than during both Great Awakenings, First and Second Great Awakenings, the African-American church growth after the Civil War, the famous Azusa revivals, and every Billy Graham conversion combined. If. Many believed. You see, in our text this morning, there is a deep irony at work. John, the author of John's Gospel, loves to use irony. He employs that rhetorical technique quite often. And in this passage, it is deeply ironic that those you would think would believe do not And those that you would think would be the last people in the world to believe, they do. John is teaching us that faith works counterintuitively, different from what we expect. Those that you think would believe do not, and those you think would not believe do. The first group are in the temple, those we would expect to believe. And indeed, they're at this great feast of dedication. You, You probably know what that is. It's called today Hanukkah. And you see, 200 years before this event here in John chapter 10, a military invader had desecrated the temple. He removed God's altar and replaced it with a pagan one. And then Judas Maccabeus came along and militarily recaptured the temple and then rededicated it to God. And so for eight days, once a year, God's people gathered and lit candles and lamps and celebrated with great joy as they rededicated themselves to the work of God and to his work at the temple. It was a feast of dedication in those days. 
Surely they would believe. Surely. And God himself walks among them at the feast of dedication. Surely they would believe. But they do not. I was thinking this week it would be a bit like gathering with a group of people for a party on President's Day. There you are at the Lincoln Memorial, nonetheless, in Washington, D.C. on President's Day, and Abraham Lincoln turns up. And no one notices. What's worse, when they do notice, they rather wish he wasn't there because he's spoiling their festivities, looking far too stern. They start off all wrong. I mean, you look at verse 24, the question they ask there. How long will you keep us in suspense? Actually, this question probably suggests that they're finding Jesus a a right royal pain in the neck, and they want to trap him in his words, and they're not really asking legitimate questions. So this question actually could be translated something like this. How long will you keep annoying us? If you are the Christ or the Messiah... Same word in two different languages. That is, if you're the anointed king promised in the Old Testament to come and redeem God's people. If you're the Christ or the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus says, well, I have told you plainly. Now, a lot of people who look at this passage get confused at this moment because Jesus in John's gospel has not literally said that he was the Messiah. Why is that? Well, the reason is clear enough. It's because that word Messiah had political and military overtones at the time. And so for Jesus to say that he was the Messiah or Christ would mean that someone would come and take him to force him to be a military conqueror like Judas Maccabeus and kick out the Romans. And the Romans would arrest him and uh, kill him for being a um, rebel against Caesar That was the shape in their mind of what Messiah meant, but it was not at all God's Messiah. And so Jesus had to use other terms from the Bible to indicate the real meaning of the Messiah because they had such a wrong idea of the Messiah. Would he have been doing that? He'd healed a man born blind. Never since since the creation of the world had anyone done that, and yet it was said the Messiah would do such things. He had said he was the son of man, the prophetic Daniel figure, the prophet Daniel had predicted would come at the end of days, the ancient of days, the divine God, son of man would come. He said, I am the son of man. He said just recently, just before this, I am the good shepherd. That is playing off the theme, of course, of David, the great shepherd king of Israel, who God had predicted would come a new David, a great David's greatest son would come, the shepherd king, the good shepherd. Jesus said, I'm that, I'm, I'm the Messiah. He said it plainly enough, but they did not believe. He'd even done miracles, astonishing miracles. They didn't believe. Why? Well, I'm afraid the reason Jesus gives is deeply unfashionable among theologians. 
Look at verse 26. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. In other words, they do not believe because they're not chosen by Jesus. As the Apostle Paul puts it, God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. Again, here is the irony. They are dedicating themselves to God at the feast of dedication, the elite, the strong, the powerful, the religious. And yet, they do not really belong to God at all. That's why they don't believe. They're not his sheep. They can't hear his voice. However much he explains it, however plainly he puts it, however many miracles he does, they have no interest really in God. For God has turned up and it's not the God they're worshipping. But how comforting are these words for the Christian. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. It's as if Jesus in this temple in Solomon's colonnade, faced by these people who do not believe in him and do not want anything really to do with God, nonetheless throws out morsels of rich bread, throws out diamonds of the most precious treasure for the Christian to pick up and enjoy and feast upon. Christian Nothing and no one can snatch you out of the hand of God. Nothing. That's what Jesus is saying. I love the story of one of the martyrs in the second century who was brought up before a king who was uh, trying to stop this man from keeping on being a Christian, and the man refused to give up being a Christian. So the king threatened him. First of all, he threatened to banish him, to throw him out of the country. The man said, you cannot banish me from Christ, for he says he will never leave me nor forsake me. That made the king really angry. He said, well, I will confiscate your property and take it all from you. The man replied, my treasures are laid up on high. You cannot get them. The king got even more angry. I will kill you. The man answered, I'm already dead. My life is hid with Christ in God. You cannot touch me. Christian, nothing and no one can touch you. Depression cannot destroy you. Abuse cannot wreck you. Impoverishment cannot impoverish you. Your life is hid with Christ in God. The devil, the devil cannot get you. He can tempt you. But you are Christ's. 
I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. You are his forever. What beautiful teaching. Oh, Lord, we're so grateful for this teaching that you keep us forever. Banish from us all fear, Lord, of anyone except you, Jesus. But they do not believe. In fact, they're so incensed by his claim that I and the Father are one, as he puts it, verse 30, that now they take up stones to kill him. Again, you've got to understand some of the context. You see, because of the Roman occupation at the time, the, the rulers no longer had the legal power of capital punishment, but they still wanted to enforce uh, God's blasphemy laws. And so there was an ever-present danger of a, of a lynch mob being formed against the foolhardy or the blasphemous or even the Son of God himself. You see, when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he is not being blasphemous. He is confirming both his distinction from God the Father and his unity with God the Father. Watch this. I is one person. The Father is another person. And they are one. As Isaiah puts it, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God. Well, this is all far too much for them. Not only is he plainly claiming to be the Messiah, he's plainly claiming to be God. And so Jesus teaches them from the Bible. In fact, he calls it, verse 34, your law. He says your law because they should have known better. It's your law. You should be paying attention to it. The thing that you treasure tells you about this. It's your Bible. Listen to it. It'd be a bit like going up to someone today who claims to be a Christian but never really goes to church and saying to them, in your Bible it says that God gave his blood for the church that you never attend. In your Bible... In your law, they should have known better. They had the words of God. They should have believed. Now, certainly a full understanding of what it means for Jesus to be human and yet also God was beyond them as it is beyond us all. We're talking about the infinite and eternal. This is beyond the finite mind of any of us. We, we can apprehend, but we cannot comprehend such divinity. No, they're not being asked to fully understand the infinitude. They're not even being asked to write a PhD doctoral thesis on the unity of Jesus with the Father as one God and two persons. A dangerous enterprise for anyone to undertake, for it is so easy to get it wrong. No, they are being asked to accept that Jesus is who he says he is and that the miracles give witness to his identity, that he is not crazy or blasphemous. Gradually, over many centuries, the church has worked out the Trinitarian implications of this teaching. They cannot be asked to grasp every minutia of all of that, as can none of us. But it is important, critically important, that we understand that the Trinity is not something imposed on the Bible, but something that emerges from the very pages of Scripture. I and the Father are one. 
I uh, received an email this week that was asking me to abandon clear biblical teaching so I can get on the right side of history. Now, the issue the email addressed is a complicated one, that for sure. But what is not complicated is that I have no desire to get on the right side of history. That's just another way of saying, do what other people want you to do. The fear of man is a trap. I want to be on the right side of God. My life is hid with Christ and God. And here's the thing. At the end of history, guess who wins? Christians have been on the wrong side of history, so-called, for an awfully long time. Well, similarly here, they are not being asked to understand everything that Jesus says and all its complications. They who are at a feast of dedication to God are being asked to dedicate themselves to God the Son. This is why Jesus teaches from the Bible in verse 34. He, he quotes from Psalm 82, calling it law because it is all God's law. It is all God's word in that sense. And in that psalm, they're called gods because they received God's word. It does not mean that they were divine. It means that they were godly in the sense that they were in a unique, privileged position of hearing God's word. So if the Bible can call those who receive God's law in that sense gods, then how much more can God himself call himself God's son? That's what Jesus is arguing. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If that's okay, why is it wrong for God himself to call himself God? Jesus is not asking them to understand every minutia what it means for him to be divine and human. He is asking them to believe. He's asking them to accept that he is who he says he is on the basis of his miracles, on the basis of his plain teaching. They should have believed. They are dedicating themselves to God. They have God walking among them. They have his teaching. They have his miracles. But irony of irony, how ironic. They don't believe. And then verse 40, we come to those who really should not believe, but they do. Jesus goes back across the Jordan to the place where John the Baptist had been baptizing in the early days. This was probably a region of the country known as Batanea in the northeast of the country. It was a rural backwater. They were not in the temple now. They were not walking among the famous Solomon's colonnade. They were not in the elite Jerusalem. They were not at a great feast of dedication. They had not seen any miracles. All they had was the preaching of John the Baptist. What an encouragement this is for us. John the Baptist did no miracles, but everything he said about Jesus was true. What a testimony, what a legacy to leave. You might not have done as many dramatic things for Jesus as you wish you had, 
but you can leave a legacy where everything you said about Jesus is true. Your children will remember that. Your grandchildren will remember that. Your friends will remember that. They should not have believed, but they did. They have none of the same privileges as the Jerusalem elite. But in this backwater in the countryside, a long way away from Jerusalem, a quiet revival breaks out. And many believed in him there. So what do we learn from this irony? I think at least four things. First of all, we learn we cannot make someone believe. Faith is a gift of God. They did not believe because they were not part of Jesus' sheep. This should come as a great relief to many people here today. Mum, Dad, you are not finally responsible for the faith of your children. Don't let anyone put you on a guilt trip. Their faith is not in your gift. You have responsibilities, for sure. I don't want to undermine those in any way whatsoever. But in the end, it is the gift of God. It's an interesting thing being a pastor, and I say this with some trepidation, but I have met some of the brilliant, most brilliant, most gifted, most loving, most competent parents on the face of the planet, and they have the most horrible children. And I have met parents who, frankly, are borderline weird And their children not only go to Harvard, but they pray four times a day. They become pastors. They're they're celebrated and brought around all the churches. Look what we've done. You haven't done it. I know you. You're a disaster as parents. It should humble you if you have great children. And it should encourage you if you have a rebellious child. It's not finally up to you. It's their decision. In the end, it's only God who can give them faith. It will drive you to your knees, that's for sure. Second, we can learn it's possible for religion to inoculate you against real faith. Of course, this is a particular danger for people who go to Christian schools, who grow up as Christians, or go regularly to church, or indeed work for a Christian organization. Sometimes think this passage, this text about Solomon's colonnade and Jerusalem and Jesus wandering around and them not believing should be read at every ordination service, should be read at every seminary, should be read in every religious organization, should be read certainly in every church. Geographical proximity to the temple does not guarantee spiritual health. You must believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Surely we 
We know this to be the case. It seems like it's hardly a month goes by before we hear some scandal or other from some other religious institution. Religious institutions will not save you, however great they may be. Accountability, however good that is, in the end will not save you. It must be between you and God. It must be faith. Third, I think we can learn that our weaknesses are God's opportunities. Here they are, the ones who believe on the other side of Jordan. They are alienated or separated from the elite. They have gathered around the teaching of the unfashionable John the Baptist in the desert. Let that encourage you if you sense that you are marginalized, alienated, unwanted, discouraged, not special. It could be in God's sovereignty that he has deliberately designed the story of your life to bring you precisely to this very moment where you sense those things that you might be an open vessel to be transformed by Christ, to become a testimony to his grace, his grace, his power, his gift, so self-evidently not yours. And the fourth and final thing I think we can learn is the simplest of all. The importance of the proclamation of God's word. Of course, preachers always want to say that. Keeps them in business. But here, those who believed, while they had no miracles from John the Baptist, all they had was what he said. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. Yes, we must be creative with our tactics as a church. Think through how to reach the Muslims down the street, the Hindus down the street, the the different people around us. Think through how to reach that great unreached people group, the rich, elite, white bankers. Yes, we must be imaginative in the way that we prayerfully ask God to unleash the gifts of this church to reach those people with all kinds of different tactics and ways to do it and personal encounters and relationships and and all the rest. But at the end of the day, every tactic, every initiative, if it's to be in any way effectual at bringing people to faith, must have this thread running through it. God's word. It is an ironic story. And here we are in a great institution like College Church, gathered to worship, to dedicate ourselves to God, And so we must pray that God would humble us, 
that He would fill us with His Spirit, that we might be numbered among those who believe. Oh, Lord God, we do pray that. We do ask, Lord, that you would do such a work in our own lives that we might trust you, that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, first of all, Lord. But then also, having so believed, we might trust you for what is going on in our lives, for the difficult things of our lives, that you have a purpose and a plan, that we might trust you to be able to be faithful to our husband or our wife, that we might trust you so that we might lead devotions at home, that we might trust you so that we would give of our lives to you. Lord, all these things are in your gift, and we ask for them. Lord, I pray for any here who feel like they're on the other side of the Jordan, unwanted. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you by your Spirit now especially reach out to them to grant them the faith to believe that you love them, that you gave yourself for them, that you died for them. And we pray, Lord, for us as a church that we might be a people who do works of faith, that we trust you and hear. Hear many would believe, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.